today. Uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, Melanie and I were not here either. Uh, back in March, when uh, Pastor Dwayne and Pastor Tim got together with me and asked if uh, we'd be willing to come and uh, share the pulpit uh, for a few weeks this summer, I said, well, we'd love to, but uh, the only fly in the ointment is over the 4th of July weekend, uh, we will be out of town. And uh, I said, I hope that's not a deal breaker. And and, uh, he said, well, where where are you going? And I said, well, we, we have the opportunity to go to New York City. And he said, yeah, you can't come and preach if you get to go to New York City. No, he didn't say that. So anyway, we had the privilege of going and having a really good time. But uh, if you've been to New York City, you know what a great place Denver really is. So, yeah. (laughs) So uh, good to be back with you today. Uh, If you're visiting with us, uh, we've been going through a series out of the book of Daniel. And up to this point, we've covered the first four chapters of Daniel and uh, essentially uh, the uh, first four chapters of the story of the uh, Jewish exiles, primarily Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his three friends, and their interaction in Babylon, primarily with King Nebuchadnezzar. And that's what we looked at a couple of weeks ago, is how God had been dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Today we're going to be in Daniel 5, and the scene, just to give us some context here, is about 30 years after chapter 4, and it shifts to a new king, Belshazzar. So before we get into this text, uh, which uh, I think is going to challenge us, I know it's challenged me as I've worked on the message this past week, uh, I'd like for us to uh, just uh, take a few moments and spend some time in prayer. So let's bow together, shall we? Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be here today to worship you, rest in you, and just be covered by your love. And Lord, I thank you for every person here and for this church. And Lord, we just pray that you would minister to each and every one of us today. But Lord, we also know that uh, it's been a bad week in our society. And uh, our hearts have been touched and our hearts are broken today. Uh, We think of families today. Families in the African-American community, families of police officers who have been killed. And Lord, this is very, very sad, and we know that this is not what you want. So Lord, today we pray for your mercy, we pray for your grace, Lord, we pray for your guidance. Uh, We want to pray for our leaders nationally, we want to pray for our leaders locally, that you would just give them a great deal of wisdom, Lord, that you would uh, help them to be able to negotiate and be able to bring peace And, Lord, that there would be not strife, but joy and unity. And, Lord, we know that that starts with us. So today, Lord, we pray for your church. We pray for your church here at Deer Creek, and we pray for your church throughout this community of Littleton and Denver. Lord, we pray for your church, not only around the world, but especially in our nation today, all the way from New York to L.A., from Seattle to Miami, and everywhere in between. Lord, we pray that your church would step forward, and in the midst of racial tension, that we would bridge those gaps because we know that in Jesus there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but we are one in Christ. So Lord, help us to step forward and bridge that gap. Father, I know that there are also people here today who in their own lives are struggling, suffering, and in pain. And so as we pray for mercy on our nation, we pray for mercy for them. 
Lord, we need your grace, we need your mercy, we need your guidance. So may you give it to us today. And Lord, we thank you for your word. It challenges us. Sometimes it rebukes us. Hopefully it will encourage us. And today as we look at this text out of Daniel 5, may you teach us. And we ask this now in Jesus' name and for our sake. Amen. One of my favorite preachers is a guy by the name of Will Williman. And Will did most of his ministry down in the southern part of the United States. And one of the reasons I always liked Will was because he has a great sense of humor and he's really, really, really funny. But on one occasion when some of us were listening to Will share from the Bible, he got pretty serious. He told a story that was kind of unlike him because of what he communicated. He said that in the early years of his ministry, he and his wife attended a funeral service that was for a member of a family, of a board member in their church. And they were just trying to go along and be supportive of their board member. But as Will said, he had never ever been to a funeral like this one before. He said there was an open casket in the front of the church And pretty much the whole service, the whole funeral service, revolved around a sermon by the preacher. And he said the preacher pounded the pulpit as he looked over the casket. And then he eyed the congregation. And he said, it's too late for Joe. He might have wanted to get his life together. He might have wanted to spend more time with his family. He might have wanted to do that, but he's dead now. It's too late for him, but it's not too late for you. There's still time for you. You can still decide because you're still alive. Today is the day of decision. Willeman said then, the preacher went on and told this story about a Greyhound bus that had gotten out of control and It had run into a funeral procession. And the preacher said, that could happen today. You should decide today. Today is the day you should come to Christ and get your life together. It's too late for those people in that funeral procession, and it's too late for old Joe. But it's not too late for you. And Williman said he couldn't wait to get out of that church said on the way home, he and his wife were driving in the car, and he said steam was coming out of his ears because he was so angry at that preacher. He finally turns to his wife and he says, Have you ever heard anything as manipulative and as insensitive as that sermon? Have you ever heard anything so disgusting? Will said, his wife said, You know, Will, you're right. I've never heard anything like that in my life. It was manipulative. It was insensitive. It was disgusting. And worst of all, it was true. When we come to the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 27, 
It says, it's appointed once for a person to die, and after that comes judgment. But the idea of judgment's not one we really talk much about in church world anymore. You know, I'm not exactly sure why that is, but maybe we don't talk much about God's judgment because actually we're just a lot more comfortable with God's love and His God's grace. And maybe we, co- we don't talk much about judgment because in all honesty, you know, we're not really clear about what God's judgment might look like. And maybe, maybe, maybe just maybe we, we don't talk about God's judgment because we're a little bit afraid of what that might mean for us. And yet as we look at the scripture all the way from Genesis to Revelation, the theme of God's judgment pops up here and there. As you even come to the New Testament and you look in the Gospels, Jesus, Jesus, the God of grace, Jesus, the God of love, Jesus, the one who went to the cross for you and me, Jesus is the one who talks about judgment more than anybody else. And sometimes in other places, on other occasions, uh, judgment is talked about. One of those places is in the book of Daniel, chapter 5. What I want us to do this morning is look at Daniel 5 and take our time walking through it. And we're going to begin by looking at the first 16 verses that set the stage. And I'm going to do some explanation after we look at these. And then what we're going to do is see what this text has to say to you and to me about how God wants us to respond to him. Daniel chapter 5, let's pay close attention. This is God's word to us. Uh, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in front of the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. And his face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak, and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners, and then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom." Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale, and his nobles were baffled. But then the queen, who as I'll explain was probably the queen mother, King Belshazzar's grandmother, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, 
He was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard that you have the spirit of the gods, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I've heard that you have the ability to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Let me explain what's going on here a little bit just to put this in context. King Belshazzar was probably the grand-nephew of Nebuchadnezzar. And the language that's used in this text about Nebuchadnezzar being his father and Belshazzar being the son is the way the writers describe these long-term relationships within these extended families, something like what they do when they talk about Jesus and King David, Jesus being the son of King David. In other words, there's a connection through an extended family. As I said earlier on, this chapter apparently takes place about 30 years after chapter 4, which we looked at two years ago. And Belshazzar has inherited his position as king. And he's surrounded by great power and great wealth, wealth that somebody even like a, a Bill Gates or a Warren Buffett probably couldn't imagine. But as we look here at this text and we look at what's going on here with Belshazzar, it's pretty clear that he's a different type of king. He's a different man than was Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't have the same values or the same drive as Nebuchadnezzar had. There's, there's no social reform going on here. There's no moral development. In fact, reading between the lines in this text, and you don't have to read between them too much, you get the sense that there's been a gradual but very clear de- decline in Babylonian government in the years since Belshazzar has taken over. And I think this scene here in Daniel chapter 5 illustrates that. See, outside the walls of Babylon at this very moment, we know that the Persian armies of the newly risen Persian Empire have gathered and they're waiting to conquer the city. But instead of preparing defense measures and gathering his armies and preparing to defend his people, what Belshazzar does is he throws this huge party. But it's not just a huge party. It's a drunken orgy. To make that point, what the biblical author does here, and when biblical authors want to stress something, is they repeat things. Five times in the first four verses of this narrative, we're seeing that we're told that Belshazzar and his nobles are drinking or drinking a lot of wine. Let me make a little comment about that here for your benefit and mine. It's not wrong to drink alcohol. I mean, there's teaching in Proverbs that says when somebody is sad, you should probably give them a little bit of wine. We, we know that Jesus himself and his first miracle he ever did in John chapter 2, he turned the water into wine at that wedding in Cana of Galilee. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul tells Timothy, take a little bit of wine for your health and for your stomach. So it's, it's not wrong to drink. 
But it's sinfully wrong to abuse alcohol because alcohol is incredibly addictive. And when it becomes addictive, it becomes destructive. And some of you here have been in families or grown up in families or been around families and you lived with the consequences of that. Years ago, I got hired to teach high school history and coach boys basketball in a small town on the western slope called Oak Creek. And when I first got hired and moved to Oak Creek, what I thought was this. I thought I was going to move back to leave it to Beaverville. I thought it was moving back to the, to the 1950s and 1960s. But when I got to Oak Creek, I realized I was moving to the center of paganism. And it shocked me. And one of the key aspects of life in Oak Creek and South Rock County was not just the use, but the abuse of alcohol. And it was destroying the lives of people in the community, especially the lives of my students. And because I wanted to minister to my students and I cared about them. And I know that students always do what you do, not do what you say. Even though I love beer and pizza, I don't think it's wrong to drink. I gave up drinking for two years because I wanted them to know I didn't think it was right for any of us to drink because they couldn't handle it. They just abused it. And when we come to Daniel chapter 5, that's exactly what's going on in this scene. Belshazzar and his wives, his concubines, and his nobles are abusing alcohol. They're drinking up a storm. And it's interesting here, friends, that all these women are mentioned a number of times in this text. See, women were not normally invited to state banquets like this. And the fact that the writer tells us that Belshazzar's harem was there, that indicates that they're only there for one reason. And then in order to show what a huge party animal he really, really is, Belshazzar orders that the goblets that Nebuchadnezzar had brought back from the temple in Judah that those goblets be brought into this party and they be used as elements, drinking elements, and whatever else in this party there in his capital city. And then as the text tells us, suddenly, without warning, a supernatural event occurs. There's handwriting going on the wall from this hand. And Belshazzar sees it. And it freaks him out. The text says that he's terrified. In fact, he's so scared that his legs start to shake and his knees knock. And he calls in his advisors and nobody can interpret the handwriting on the wall. And then suddenly the queen mother, as I said, probably Belshazzar's grandmother, recommends that this old Jew, Daniel, be brought in because he can probably do the job. Once again, it appears that Daniel has no part in this government. It looks like he's been marginalized because Belshazzar has no idea who he is. And Daniel's older now. He's probably in his 70s. But he hasn't lost his ability. He still speaks as the voice of God here. And he recognizes that this party, this orgy, this event is simply the culmination of a series of really, really bad choices that Belshazzar has made over the last 25 or 30 years. He knows that Belshazzar has ruined Babylon with his narcissistic self-indulgence. And in a final show of depravity, Belshazzar decides to trash the goblets 
of the sovereign God of Israel. And so when Belshazzar says to him, Hey, Daniel, if you can interpret the handwriting on the wall, I'll give you all this stuff. Here's how Daniel responds. You can keep your gifts for yourself. You can give your rewards to somebody else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. And so in verses 18 to 28, essentially what Daniel does is he gives a litany of the charges that Belshazzar is guilty of and the final verdict. This comes in two parts. Here's the first part. Here's the bad news. Belshazzar is going to be condemned and judged by the sovereign God. That's the bad news. Here's the worst news. That very night, and this is the end of the story, that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede, who was the king of the Persians, took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Biblical scholar and theologian Ronald Wallace, who I quoted a couple of weeks ago, says this, and I love this statement, and I hope you love it too. He says, mercy is appropriate to God. He delights in it. Judgment is strange to him. It's his shadow side, and he wants it always to remain so. Well, given Wallace's observation, which, as I said, I love, and I, I hope you love that too. Given that, some of you are probably sitting here thinking, and I would, I would say thinking rightly so. Uh, Scott, if God revels in his mercy, and judgment is his shadow side, why do we need to sit here and hear about his judgment at all? I mean... Scott, I'm a believer. I'm a follower of Jesus. This is a Christian church. What does a corrupt Babylonian king who lived 2,500 years ago, who seemed to get what he deserved, what does that have to do with my life today in suburban Littleton, Colorado in 2016? Well, I think that those are really, really good questions. But what I want us to realize is that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, all scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Now, one of the things we need to realize is when Paul wrote that, the New Testament was in the process of being written and canonized. Primarily, though, what Paul was referring to when he told Timothy that was what we today call the Old Testament, Torah. Stories like Daniel chapter 5. So friends, what I want to do this morning is try to show you and myself, and I mean this seriously, we are all in this together, what God wants from us and why his judgment sometimes comes. So in order to do that, what I want to do is break down Daniel's response to Belshazzar as they stood there in the courtroom in the middle of that orgy. And show us how God is speaking to Belshazzar through Daniel and what that means for us. So, first of all, let's go on and let's look at the next part of the text and see the first lesson that the Lord would teach us this morning. 
Here's what Daniel is now telling Belshazzar. He gives him a history lesson here. Let's notice and see what he says. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. And those he wanted to spare, he spared. And those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped from his glory. Remember Daniel chapter 4 that we looked at two weeks ago. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms on earth and sets them over anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself even though you knew all this. Belshazzar, you knew better. You knew Nebuchadnezzar. You knew what happened to him. You saw the change in his life. You saw how he repented. And yet you still chose to go your own evil direction. See, friends, what God wants from us is he wants us to be teachable, not foolish. The problem is this. It's a problem I have. It's a problem you have. It's called sin. It's part of our nature. See, what sin does with us is sin tries to always get us to do what we want to do rather than doing what God wants to do and what God has taught us to do through his scripture, through his teaching, through the conscience he's given us. God wants us to listen to him, to be teachable, and yet sin tells us to do what we want. And that's just foolish. Now, if you were to walk out of Deer Creek Church and you were to hang a right here and walk down the uh, pathway to the parking lot, you were to go down to the last parking lot down here, what you'll run into is a 99 Volkswagen Jetta that's green. That's my summer car. I call it a poor man's BMW, okay? Well, I got that car a long, long time ago. It was nearly new when I got it. And it's still relatively fast. It still functions pretty well for me. But when I got it, it was like way fast. And I got to tell you, I like going fast in cars. I really enjoy that. That's really, really, really fun to me. Well, this was a long time ago. It was about three months after I got that car, and it was in the summertime, and I remember it really, really well. And some of you get this. It was a, it was a Saturday night, and I was coming home late, about 10.30, and I was over on East Hamden Boulevard and University, where the old Denver Center used to be. And it was one of those beautiful summer nights. You know, it's about 75 degrees out, and there wasn't too much traffic on the road, and I had the sunroof open and the windows down, And that car has a good sound system in it. And I was rocking and rolling. I was having a really good time. Now, I had driven that road hundreds and hundreds of times in my life. And I knew that at the bottom down there, right there at Logan and Hamden, there's always a speed trap there. Always, always, always. 
because it goes from 40 to 35 and they're trying to get you. And this is a summer night and I'm thinking there's not going to be a speed trap there and I don't even care if there is. I'm going to just let it fly. And so I let it fly and I come through the curve and I get down there past Logan and as I come under the underpass under Broadway, all of a sudden there are red and blue lights in my rearview mirror and it's not a Kmart special. That was an incredibly foolish decision I made. That cost me a lot of money. And I mean a lot. Friends, the Lord Jesus wants us to listen to him. Listen to his scripture. Listen to our conscience. Look at the lives of men and women around us who have done really well and who have failed. And be teachable Not foolish. Not foolish. Quick question number one for us. Given the reality of God's judgment, which the Scripture teaches, are we teachable? That's the first thing this story tells us. The second thing this story shows us is that God wants us to be penitent not arrogant. Look at what Daniel now charges Belshazzar with. He says, Belshazzar, not only only were you foolish and not teachable, now look. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. And you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Friends, I want to suggest to you that the word choice here is nothing short of amazing. And it forcefully drives home the point of Belshazzar's arrogance rather than his penitence. You exalted yourself. You desecrated the goblets. You committed idolatry. You disregarded the sovereign God. Now, here's our temptation. Our temptation is to think that this was just a single episode in Belshazzar's life. But that's not the way human life functions, friends. No, this was simply the culmination of a lifetime of bad choices rooted in an arrogant and stubborn heart that was willing to challenge God. And the reason Belshazzar thought he could challenge God was because he thought he was beyond accountability. He thought that he could get away with doing whatever he wanted. And as a result, it destroyed him. What we need to know, though, friends, is our God and Father, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, He wants us to be penitent, not arrogant. I mean, as I said before, quoting Ronald Wallace, the core of who God is, is grace and mercy. And we see that throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, not least in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I mean, there are so many passages in the Scripture which talk about God's love and His patience with sinners. Perhaps none of which is more clear than 2 Peter 3.9, 
which says this, God is not slow in keeping his promises, some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Last Sunday morning, Melanie and I went with our friends, the wards, downtown to lower Manhattan to the 9-11 memorial. Some of you have probably been there and seen it. Uh, The people who designed that and built that just did an absolutely fabulous job because what they have done, if you haven't been there, is they have built these two huge inside waterfalls on the foundations of the Twin Towers. And they're very, very beautiful. And on the outside, ringing each one of those waterfalls, they have the names of all the people who were killed on 9-11 in this tower and this tower, all the people who were killed in the planes who crashed into those towers, and all the first responders who were killed. It's very moving. Just standing there, I got choked up. But as I was standing there, and I'm not sure why this happens, because I'm not a mystic. It's not the way the Lord works with me. But as I was standing there, that passage in Luke chapter 13 came to mind, where those people come up to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, did you hear about that tower of Siloam that fell on those people? And you know, you, you kind of think maybe Jesus in the context would say, boy, that's, that's really, really really sad. Let, let, let's, let's pray for their families. Or maybe Jesus would go into this extended explanation of the problem of evil. But that's not what Jesus says at all. That's not how he responds at all. Jesus, as always, is not only surprising. Jesus is shocking. What Jesus does is he looks at those people who brought him in the report and he says, you know what? Unless you repent, you too will perish. Penitence is a big deal in the sight of God. He wants us to be penitent, not arrogant. An old rabbi used to tell his students, you need to repent the day before you die. And his students would say, but rabbi, 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 we we don't know the day of our death. And he would say, then you need to repent today. Quick question number two. In view of God's judgment, is there a sin that you need to repent of, that I need to repent of today? Not tomorrow, not Wednesday, not next Sunday, not next month, not next year, but today. See, friends, this story shows us that God wants us to be teachable, not foolish. He wants us to be penitent, not arrogant. It also shows us he wants us to be responsive, not callous. Look at the rest of what happens here. Daniel now lays out the handwriting on the wall and its interpretation for Belshazzar. Here's what he says. Therefore he, that is God, sent the hand that wrote this inscription, Belshazzar. This is the inscription that was written. Many, many, tekel, parson. Here's what these words mean, Belshazzar. Many. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. 
Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Well, obviously the focus of the handwriting on the wall are these three words. Many, which means numbered, tekel, which means weighed, and peres, which means divided. I think what these words collectively and this element that Daniel is now communicating to Belshazzar teach us is that God has a perfect sense of right and wrong. And when he judges any person, any society, any nation, it's always, always, always for perfectly legitimate reasons. Because he's holy and he's all-knowing. But once again, given God's mercy, given God's compassion, given God's love, he wants us to respond to him even in the face of judgment, even at the last possible moment. I mean, Daniel's sitting there, and he's told Belshazzar, you're judged. It's at the end. But Daniel's also thinking, I saw Nebuchadnezzar respond. I saw him change. He repented. Daniel's thinking about the time when he sat on mama's knee, or he heard daddy tell the story about King David when King David abused his power, and, and, and he had adultery with Bathsheba, and he murdered her husband Uriah, and then he tried to cover it all up. And Nathan the prophet came in and said, you're the man. And Daniel knows that at the last moment, David responded to God. And from a New Testament perspective, you and I know this. We know that when Jesus hung on the cross, one of those thieves who was right next to him, who was dying, who deserved to be killed, says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We know from the New Testament, if, if you've read the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas are there in the Philippian prison. They got beat up and they're singing hymns of praise to God and there's an earthquake and it's from God and that Philippian jailer, he knows something has happened and he rushes into them and he responds at the last moment and he says, men, what must I do to be saved? There's still time for Belshazzar to respond. There's still time for him to fall on his face and say, Lord, I know I have dissed you. I know I've been arrogant. I know I've been unteachable. I know I deserve death. But now I know. Now I know. Now I know. I need you. But that's not what happens. Verses 29 through 31 of this narrative say, Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. I think it's fascinating that at the beginning of the story, we're told three times that Belshazzar was terrified and his knees were knocking because of the handwriting on the wall. But here at the end, after he gets the interpretation, there is no emotional response whatsoever. Zero emotional response. He simply gives Daniel this completely worthless reward and then he's taken out that night. Friends, what the author is communicating to us here 
is that year by year by year, Belshazzar's heart got hardened and hardened and hardened, and it became so callous that even when he's facing death and destruction, he can't respond. C.S. Lewis once said this, In the end, there will only be two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, your will be done. Belshazzar dies, a man separated from God. A man who got not only what he deserved, he got what he wanted. He got his will done, but it led to his destruction. Friends, that's not what God wants for us. He wants us to be close to him. He wants us to be open to him. He wants us to always be responsive to him. I don't think anything ever communicated that better than the most famous verse in the scripture, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, you and me, that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, that whosoever believes in him is responsive to him, will not perish, that is, receive judgment, but have everlasting life. Quick question number three. In view of God's judgment, how responsive are we to the Holy Spirit right now? I've got to be honest with you here today, friends. I'm not too sure I like these stories of judgment that occasionally pop up here and here and here in the Scripture. But as I've meditated on this and I've read the Bible over the years, I've come to the conclusion that the Holy Spirit inspires the authors of Scripture to include these stories, and then he inspired the ancient Jews and the early Christians to put them in the canon of Scripture because they force me and they force you to look at our relationship to the sovereign God. And that's exactly what this story in Daniel chapter 5 does. It's trying to get us to ask, am I teachable? Am I penitent? Am I responsive? Or am I on a path of foolishness and arrogance that will eventually lead me to being callous? Uh, Stories like this force us to ask, is there anything in my life that I'm holding out from the Lord and what he wants for me? As I sit here in church today, July 10th, 2016, how's my heart towards the Lord and towards spiritual things? On Tuesday morning, September 11th, 2001, Colonel Brian Bessling was walking through a hallway in the Pentagon at exactly 9.37 a.m. that morning when American Airlines Flight 77, which weighed 80 tons and was going 520 miles an hour, crashed into the west face of the Pentagon. Colonel Bessling was thrown off his feet He was knocked unconscious for a few moments. He eventually woke up and he was on fire. 
He was surrounded by fire. It was a chaotic scene. He did not know what to do or where to go. So he gathered himself, and then he pointed himself this direction, and he ran as hard as he could, and as he ran, he shouted as loud as he could at the top of his lungs, Jesus, I am running to you. He knew that he might die, but if he did, he'd be with Jesus, or that maybe by God's grace, he could run out of the building, and it just so happened that the Lord in his grace helped him run out of the building, and now he has more time in this life. You know, friends, the Scripture is really, really clear. It's clear to me. It's clear to you. We don't have to wonder where to run. We don't have to wonder who to run to. Our Savior, Jesus, calls us to run to him right now. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you're wrestling with today. I know where I'm at and what I'm wrestling with. And what the Savior wants us to do is run to him. What we want to do today is say, Jesus, I am coming to you. I need your help. I need your grace. I need your mercy. And if we do that, what we need to realize is that Jesus will run towards us. He will receive us. He will redeem us so long as we are teachable and penitent and responsive. Let me pray for us, all of us, including myself, and then we're going to sing some more. Father, these are hard texts, and we don't always like to hear them, but we want to thank you today for putting them in your word so that you can show us who you are and what you want for us, for every one of us. Lord, I pray for myself today. I pray for all my friends here today. I pray that our hearts would be open to you and that you would just gather us in and love on us, encourage us, change us, and watch over us. Thanks for this time together. May we now sing some praise to you in your name. Amen. We love our, our team at South, uh, both the pastors and the worship team, and they're great. But, and we get to travel around other churches. But we've we got to tell you, this church has an awesome worship band. Let's give them a hand. Take somebody by the hand next to you, and let's have a benediction. Father, thanks for the truth that nothing can stop your love. So fill us with your love today for each other, for our neighbors, for our communities, for our country, and for the world. Lord, we thank you so much that you loved us, that you gave us Jesus. We ask all this in his great, glorious name. Amen. Hey, give somebody a hug or a handshake. Let's.